right, we're recording. Welcome to episode 50 for Out From The Cube. And when we started this, well, we started the podcast back in April. And it was a, it's a, like anything that you're trying to be successful at. Sometimes it's a slow, slow burn. And it has been a slow burn. But uh, Tim Ferriss is a podcast I listen to or used to listen to a lot. I haven't listened to it as much recently. But Tim said, hey, just put 10 episodes out, see where you're at. 20 episodes, see where you're at. Keep correcting. And uh, you'll be surprised where you get. Well, we've made it to 50. And um, super excited about who we have with us today. And I'm going to start with this. Uh, and people that have listened to the podcast, um, I've said this before. Um, there, there are many selfish motivations for the podcast. And I don't apologize for that. One is for, I, 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 at 45 years old, um, and I wish I had this mindset at um, at 25 or 15, my life, you know, I wouldn't maybe have had the life, some of life's struggles, but this uh, appetite for knowledge and information and learning and trying to be my best self and trying to just uh, get as much content in my mind as I can and then being able to distribute that. So that is one uh, agenda, piece of agenda, uh, one thing I have for this podcast, one agenda I have. The other one is just to meet people, just to be totally honest. And because of the podcast, I have met some amazing people. I've had some of the best conversations of my life. Um, and that's not hyperbole. That's the fact. Um, I've had some amazing conversations that have impacted me. A coach told me years ago, the two things that will change your life and move the needle are the people you meet and the books you read. Those are the two things that move the dial uh, for you with your life. And so I kind of take that to heart. I'm going to meet people and I'm going to uh, network and have conversations and, and, and have my life be impacted by those people. So today, actually 24 hours ago, I didn't even know our guest, didn't know him at all. Um, and uh, he reached out to me. I think we connected on LinkedIn because I do reach out to a number of people on LinkedIn and we ended up being connected and Corey and uh, sent me a message. I sent him a message immediately back, asked him when he'd be available and that we actually had an opening. Uh, for a guest today on Friday. And he, he I, I wouldn't say he rearranged his schedule, but we just found some holes in his schedule. And, uh, and so now we have him on. So within 24 hours, probably less than that, um, we were able to get Corey on the show. And so with that, and I'm going to actually start off by this, and I should have asked you this off air. How do you pronounce your last name? So I'll tell you, George, the best that I can do is Poirier. Poirier. That's, That's as good as I can do. Okay, so that's, that, is, that is what I was kind of saying. So my last name has a J in it. It is Scandinavian. And if you look at my name, everybody says Evgen, but it is actually Evian. So you, and I, you, have some, it's, you have the R in the middle, but it's Poirier, right? Poirier? That's correct. Poirier. And when I say the best that I can do, I've heard people pronounce my name in such a sexy way. <laughs> I even tried to go, okay, I need to emulate that. And I can emulate it when they say it. I can say it right after them. Two days right. later, I can't say it again. Right. So... I, it's as good as I got. Perfect. So I know I, we are, uh, it's not that we're on a time crunch. I, I will say this. Um, I watched a, a po I watched a video this week on YouTube with Ed Milet and a guy named Dean Graziano, I think his name is. And phenomenal people. Jason Wells and I talked about this episode in our episode we recorded uh, yesterday, I believe. But Ed Milet said something to Dean Graziano um, as they kind of started talking. And it made me think of you, Corey, as I, as you reached out to me yesterday, I watched some of your videos, I listened to some of your TEDx talks, um, read some things about you. And Ed Milet said this to Dean, he was like, 
being with you and talking with you and researching you, you have something in you that I just innately am rooting for. Like there's just something about you. And he said that to them. And as I'm watching these videos, I'm like, man, that guy's on it, man. I like, like I, I was pulled to you. I was locked in on what you were saying. And I was like, I'm root, I root for that guy. And I don't even know him. And I just found myself kind of thinking the same thing that Ed Milet said. So you have this um, presence uh, to you that I was, I was drawn to in all your talks, which, which we can get into many of those. But I, I want to start off with that. I thought, I thought all your talks that I have found online were really good. Oh, my, well, that's more than humbling. So, wow, thank you so much. Yeah, so in, li in, in doing some research on you, uh, the, and this is what I wanted to start with, and you brought it up offline before we got going. Uh, one of my favorite television shows is on Netflix now. It used to only be online, and it is called Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. It is Jerry Seinfeld's uh, uh, Netflix episode that, or uh, Netflix series that he does where he gets with, together with his buddies. They get in a car. They actually now do an errand. They go and somebody went and bought a rug, and they do different errands, and then they end up at a coffee shop, and they talk just about whatever. Essentially, though, what they end up talking about is the, uh, the craft and the profession of being a comedian and what that's like and how they prepare and what's funny, what's not funny, all this sort of stuff. And when I researched you, I thought of that because, and you even said today, you spent eight years as a stand-up comic? Uh, actually, nine years, 700 shows. 700 shows? Yeah, 700 shows. Oh, my word. So are you still doing that? Absolutely not. <laughs> and, and to add why not, when I say absolutely not, it's, at 700 shows, it's not one of those things where, you know, you go, well, I realized it wasn't for me or something like that. I think 700 shows in, you already know if this is something you're open to doing regularly. I did it regularly for, um, like I say, nine years. Two things happened. One, I, I just kept getting busier and busier with speaking. Two, though, with, there was a very intentional reason that I sort of slowed down. I actually took a booking for a client that I was already lined up for eight talks with. They convinced me to take it, well, a booking because the comic uh, canceled at a show they were putting on. So I became the entertainer for the night. Out of 300 people in the room, one person was offended by one joke, and he, but he happened to be the chairman of the board and he canceled all eight of my talks. And that was the day I said, okay, now either A, I have to separate it so far that I'm not even doing both in the same city, or B, I have to just take a break. And I decided the second part to take a break. The only thing I'll add, is I probably performed four times, maybe five in the last three years. And here's what I do now, George, which is kind of exciting. It feels good to do this. As I said, I kind of went into a retirement. And, and I can actually say that because I, I did get paid as a comic for some of that time, not all of it, closer to the end of the time. But what happened was uh, I would get opportunities like to perform at Second City or to perform at the Improv. And they would just be random opportunities that came up. Maybe I, like Second City, I knew somebody. And he said, I hear you're in town. Did you want to perform at Second City? I'm like, of course I do. Anybody that knows Second City knows why I said, of course I do. You know, the people on that stage would have been Dan Aykroyd, Tina Fey, yeah. Dan, Steve Martin. And so long story short is now what I do is I only perform those kind of opportunities where I just can't say no. You know, it's just one of those moments where you're like, I got, I, I'll regret this if I say no. And my girlfriend was traveling with me when I performed at Second City, and that's the only time she's ever seen me perform. So think about that, you know, as a guy who started out bombing stage after stage, and the only time your girlfriend's ever seen you perform live was at Second City. That's mm. pretty epic. So I couldn't yeah. say no to that. Right. So that, that, that's a two-minute answer as to comedy in terms of how long I perform, but also why I'm not these days. 
So, my man, there's so many directions we could go just on that. Um, this is uh, so part of what we do for a living and coaching. And if you've listened to the podcast before, we talk about coaching and leadership and running teams and products and, and uh, agile. We've talked about all this sort of stuff. One of the pillars or part of all those discussions is this is getting feedback, getting feedback personally or how to provide feedback, get feedback. Stand up comedy, you're getting feedback on the second. Right. And, and I know we could go on and I know we only have 45 minutes and I need to isolate on, on really this, but I like this. Um, you get immediate feedback. The first joke you told you in one of your talks, you said you forgot to turn the mic off and nobody laughed. Right. Uh, well, actually the opposite forgot to turn the mic on, forgot and, to turn the mic on. Right. Yeah. So basically it was not only one of the jokes in one of the shows, it was my first time ever on stage ever. Oh. And, and I didn't know I was going to be on stage. This is the weird part. A half hour before that joke. The reason was is because the guy that got us into that mess put on a two-week workshop, convinced us to, to go to the workshop. Uh, or I shouldn't say convinced us, we decided to go to the workshop, but we paid to go. There were 15 of us. Most of them were entertainers, but they were uh, film and stuff, like not obviously live and in the moment. And so we went to this local comedy club and we filled the room. We were told we we're going to watch people entertain us. And we found out about five minutes to showtime, we were actually the people. That oh. were doing entertaining. And so I went to, the, this is part of the joke, but it's true. I went to the bathroom to try to find an exit window. Uh, I don't think I ever would have tried to scale the building, but I, that was my mindset. I got to get out of this place. I came back out, eight of the 15 of the people who paid and already were in film and stuff were gone. Oh. So ultimately after about 10 minutes after eight, showtime is supposed to start at eight. So now we're past showtime, but everybody's debating who's going to go up first. I ultimately jumped on the stage, grabbed the mic, launched into my joke, just figured, go go all to the wall and just do it and uh and bombed horribly like the joke just no laughs dead silence people just staring like deers in the headlight uh me doing the same sweat starts streaming told <laughs> the second joke bomb again and then that and this goes to the point you mentioned is the guy that got us into this called me over the corner of the stage and gave me a schmuck in the back of the head and he said you idiot we haven't even turned the mic on yet <laughs> first joke ever first second joke ever so, but what, what's that like getting that immediate feedback from an audience? That's good and bad, right? You, it's crickets, like, as you say, or tumbleweeds rolling down. And, but then there's the great laugh where you just, you know, um, to both extremes, right? Um, I mean, I talk about both. I mean, that's, I mean, it's gotta be really thrilling, right? That is the, the great thing when you are a public speaker or probably I can't speak for being a stand-up comic, but being a public speaker where you're feeling like, man, I'm hitting it. I'm connecting. I'm making an impact. People are listening this, that, that story I've told, whatever it might be. And the stand-up comic where everybody just roars with laughter and you get that, that that's got to really juice you up. It, it does. And here's, here's the catch 22. So first of all, the feedback of, crickets <laughs> that's right. I mean, technically you can say that's still feedback i mean it's obviously feedback but what people don't realize a lot of people think heckling is the worst thing that can happen when you're on a stage and it's not even close silence is far worse than heckling mm. with a heckler 50 percent of the time it may go bad but the other 50 percent of the time you can no matter what way you can still work with the heckler you know you can still and i say work with them i mean you still might be embarrassed it might be your first time on stage and you get heckled it'll probably feel worse to you then than silence but what you realize as you go through it, silence is much worse. So if somebody's drunk or whatever and they heckle you, uh, I remember uh, one of my early shows, the action, this is wild, it was the owner of that club I mentioned earlier. And it wasn't really, we converted it to a club once a week, technically. Uh, the owner of this place, and it was a kind of a dive. Uh, they ended up closing it because they got a had a fight and two people went through the front window one night and then it was closed after that. Mm -hmm. 
lease, I think, forced them to close down or something. But one of the guys in there owned it. There were two owners, and I was performing one night, and he heckled me. Mm. He, he and I forget the heckle was so like uh, I talked about a girl, and he said a case of beer, and meaning like you know in his mind was she pretty or whatever, oh, and right. take a case of beer, and so. I, I couldn't hear what he said, which is worse. That's the worst thing when somebody heckles you and you don't hear what they say because then you're like, because then it stops you, but you don't even know how to work with that. Right. And I said, case of beer. And, you know, and so then I had to, I had to actually work with that. But the point is I could do something with that. But if it's just silence, you can't do anything. So for SARS feedback, heckling, silence, or laughter, or somebody even saying, right on, man, those are all, you know, all forms of feedback. And so to answer your question about what that feels like, I mean, it, it sucks when you have the silence, but you got to find a way to work with that. So for me, I learned, it's kind of like, almost like a, call it a safety net. You can figure out, this is the, the part that it takes you a while to figure out. You can work in safety nets that as long as you don't do them more than once in a set or you don't do it the same way twice, uh, you can actually use it to, to get extra laughs out of a non-laugh. So as an example, you could tell a joke and it could bomb horribly and you could just throw something out like, Poof. I guess I shouldn't have written, wrote, written that joke in the way over in the car, mm -hmm. you know, or whatever. Right, right, right. And it, it, it gets something that you can work with. So, right. but the point, going back to your point, um, so it's thrilling, but at the same time, it's the reason most people won't try stand up or speaking is because, and a lot of people think it's the fear of rejection. I believe it's the fear of the unknown, but the people that continue to go back and do it, that this is the part that's weird that I was driving at. That's what drives them. It's mm -hmm. the thrill of not knowing what's going to happen. It, it sucks if it goes wrong and it could be devastating, but there's still a thrill in not knowing. Mm -hmm. And what I, I, so I play music and, and played music in clubs for years and music, people always ask me, what's the difference with stand up and music? Cause when I, I bet stand up and speaking helped me because now I can interact with an audience in between the songs and tell stories, which I wouldn't have been able to do. And people say, I love your shows because, and I haven't played in a while, but I love your shows because you're telling a story about the song and I had a laugh in the story. And so I actually work in what I learned in those other worlds. But the point is, people say, what's the difference? And I say, you never, I mean, there's no such thing as ever mastery, I don't think. But you can come very close to mastering music and having five nights in a row that went off without a hitch. Mm -hmm. Comedy is a different beast. And I think that's what drives people to keep going back. But to finish this all off, what I will say is, and as an example that happened yesterday, speaker or comic, the, the thrill of what could go wrong is always apparent to you like when as, not early on because you're so in the moment but as you as you start doing it you're actually going in your head okay what was that feedback well how can i work with that feedback they laughed at that part i didn't think they'd laugh at now should i add something else in and so that to me is the interesting part of it but you also have the room for things to fail and it happened yesterday i don't know if it failed i didn't really I got feedback though right away and I knew as soon as I said it, I shouldn't have said it and I should have learned because I'm on a tour and it was a similar group a week before and I didn't say it, but I implied it and it didn't go over well. So there's in your head, you, should, you go, that doesn't work. But the, I'll tell you what it was is uh, I was talking on personality types and I said how there's this one personality type that's de detailed oriented and asks a lot of questions and, and on, you know, from the IT side. It would be that personality type typically. And I said, sometimes at the extreme, they'll ask really random questions. And so I talked about this call center who gets these calls. Uh, they're booking hotel rooms for people. And people will call and ask questions like, how big is, you know, how big is the toilet? How big, and what, stuff like that. And so one of the questions was, uh, that they got was, uh, people were going to Mardi Gras, New Orleans, and they said, how far is the bed from the toilet? And in comedy, right. you never go 
toilet humor. And I didn't really go toilet humor at all. But what I said was, whenever they didn't like get no feedback from me saying that, I thought, I, what I thought was implying it, they'll get it. You know, they'll get mm -hmm. what I'm saying. How far is the bed from the toilet? The reason they're asking is because they're drinking or whatever. Right. And I said, but of course, they're gone to Mardi Gras, so they need to know how close the toilet's going to be. And it was like a, oh, <laughs> in the room. <laughs> so it was like almost like <laughs> toilet humor that didn't work. Now, it was, it's not, that's like, that's the things that can happen, but it wasn't so bad that I lost them. Like by the end, they were still 100% all in. It wasn't that bad, but if I would have obviously went more visual with that, it might have been. Right. But that's, that's the kind of thing that I thought would be funny. Like just somebody, because my thinking of it is drinking and mm -hmm. I need to go get sick. Mm -hmm. But then I realized after I said it, they might be thinking the other side of what happens whenever you're drinking. Right. Right. Like when I'm saying, oh, you got to get there quickly. Well, to me, I'm, you got to get there quickly if you're getting sick too, if you're vomiting. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's not that, that gross or far out there for people that have probably drank in their life and got sick. So the point is, is that I read it wrong, did it mm -hmm. twice, and I have the fourth and final uh, leg of this tour, and I won't be doing that one again. But right. my point, George, is that's the thing that thrills a person that likes it, I think, is not knowing how that's going to go, but then being able to work with it if it goes bad. The key thing, though, is to realize you're always on. You know, when you go to the bathroom, you might have the mic turned on and not realize it. When you're being interviewed and people say, oh, it's off the record. So I think a big thing that's hard for people early on to realize is you're always on and you could always slip up. So the mm -hmm. better you are at working on your feet and you get that only from practice, the better chance you're going to be able to, even in your head, make sure don't say that. Just as right. about your say something, say, no, that's the wrong thing to say. Yeah. So that's a long but, way to say it, but that's no. the part I like about the feedback, but it's also the scary part. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And uh, I admire you for, for doing that. Um, I'm, I'm not suggesting that I've ever had anything in my mind that I would like to attempt that or anything, but even just speaking, public speaking, podcasting, whatever it is, putting yourself out there, being ready uh, for and receptive to the feedback, uh, you know, but the, the stand-up comedy thing seems to be immediate, uh, you know, kind of on the second. So you do that uh, or used to do that. Um, now, and when I did... I'm just going to rattle through a number of things. You, you're, you run a speaking program or are involved in speaking programs. It seems to be that is where you spend most of your time is traveling and doing speakings to businesses, executives, and uh, teams and things of that nature, but also a contributor to Forbes and entrepreneur magazines, I believe, or online with maybe some writing and that, um, um, but those are kind of, but you do, but most of your time now is really spent speaking and traveling around and you're up in Canada, correct? So you travel around Canada most of the time. Uh, is that true or not true? We did say that you're in Canada, but you, you did say North America. Are you all over even the States? Uh, yeah, it's probably like a 70, 30, uh, okay. 70 more on the Canada side. Okay. Uh, and, but I'm, that's changing too, because I'm getting a lot more. It's like anything, the more talks you do somewhere, the more people say, reach out and say, Hey, can you come and do a talk for us now? Or sure. you speak at an association and members of the association are large enough. They have their own entity and they're saying, can you come back and do a talk for us? So it's, I think if you ask me that question in two years, it'll probably be 50, 50. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's each year it changes slightly and to answer the other kind of question there about, uh, is that where I spend most of my time? It, it is, uh, I, for, if you ask me that question, Five years ago, I, I've been speaking for 16 years. It's always been sort of my the core side of my business, but I've also always had something else on the go. So I used to have a business publication like Success Magazine, but more of a regional thing for six years on a monthly basis. Mm. And then that transitioned into a uh, radio show, which then transitioned into a podcast. So really since, I guess, 
over 10 years, I've always had some form of doing these interviews on the side yeah. and always having a platform to share them. So that's always been the side thing. But in the last three years, I launched a speaking program three years ago because I, the most common question I was getting from people is how do you make a living at this? How are, you know, I see bookings, that, I see you post on Facebook, you were speaking on a Tuesday and then by Wednesday or Thursday, you got a new picture up of you speaking somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And because I, I'm always open about it. These are all paid bookings. Like I don't do no fee bookings. I think I've done five no fee bookings this year. And there was a very good reason, whether it's a charity, I believe in somebody I know really well. And so people, here's a, here's a misnomer, George, is that people see on everybody's LinkedIn profile or Facebook profile, international sought after speaker. Mm. And then when you dig deeper, you find out a large percentage of those people speak three times a year or don't get paid for any of their talks. And I say this knowing firsthand, and I'm not outing anybody, but people that come to my program that have international best-selling sought-after speaker and reach out to me and say, can you teach me how to get paid to speak? Mm. And we're just in that world now where, mm-hmm. unfortunately, everybody thinks I can just put whatever po- you know, title I want up, and that makes me that person. But here's an interesting thing. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the name Lisa Nichols, but we had her on the show recently. She was in The Secret. Uh, she she's, has a company called Motivating the Masses, mm-hmm. and Lisa is a seven-figure speaker, and so meaning she earns in excess of a million a year, and they did a study with her company that showed that less than 10% of the speakers today make six-figure income, and that's not just speaking. Like with their whole, any, whatever business they have, people that are involved in speaking, uh, less than 1% make seven-figure income. Hmm. But yet, almost every person you look at on social media now is a speaker. Mm-hmm. And so why I bring this up is because people were saying to me, how do I actually get paid? You know, it's one thing to put it on my page, but I want to actually be that guy or girl that's getting paid to do this. And then, so that was three years ago. And then my new question that started up about a year ago is once I passed the corner of two to three TEDx talks, once I was going from two to three, mm-hmm. as soon as, after second, and then once the third hit, then I started getting the question almost weekly, how did you secure a TEDx talk? You know, I, I know people that have, have this massive signature story and they're all over the media and they still haven't got a TEDx talk and this little random dude has three, how are you doing it? And so I launched a year ago a TEDx program. So <laughs> that's the full circle of, I do yeah. spend probably 60% of my time, 70% speaking and running those two programs. Oh, perfect, perfect. So you said offline and I didn't write this down. Um, how many, so you got into interviewing and podcasting and, and you had this mindset, Hey, I'm going to find some of these influ- uh, high achievers. Right. And I, and I, I love it that you, um, kind of preface that by saying they not necessarily high achievers financially. Right. And I, I kind of like that mindset. Um, and you started interviewing these people. How many people did you say you have interviewed to this point? Over 5,000, over 5,000 people. Yeah. Once we get closer to, uh, any, like, uh, 500 or the next thousand then we like once i know it's getting close to that then we go back and tally them up since but it's all documented so basically right. i know when i finished at 5,000, and then you know so eventually it'll be 5500 i think fairly yeah. soon but 5,000, over 5,000. right so now we'll kind of jump into it and we only have about 20 minutes left and what i'm going to ask is the next time you have a hole in your schedule just send me a message and we'll spin up another meeting because because uh, there's so much to cover uh with some of the talks and some of the things that are that are on my kind of my heart and my mind this week with things I've been learning. But let me ask you this real quick, 5,000 talks uh, with people that you kind of claim are uh, high achievers. What is the commonality amongst these people to kind of start putting some questions? I'm not saying that everybody had this, but what is something that just sticks out to you? Like, yeah, they had that, they had that, they had that. 
that are kind of the, these, uh, not uh, separators, but these things that kind of put these people together? Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you, I'll give you the top three. Okay. And, you know, I want to make sure, even though we have a short amount of time, we deliver as much value as possible. And right. it's funny because we kind of, I don't know if you ever heard of the dip method of storytelling, but it's funny because I feel like we kind of sort of started down that path, which is cool, even though, because the cool part about that is, People don't realize sometimes they're learning through the DIP method, but basically the DIP method is you start with somebody's, uh, so now if you're sharing a story, you'll start with your kind of your high points. Here's my achievements, what have you. Uh, but it wasn't always this way. Here was my journey. You know, and so for example, we talked about me bombing on a stand-up stage, or it could be talking about when I faced anxiety and all those, that's your kind of your bottom of your dip. And then the coming back out is what did I learn that helped me bring me back out? Mm -hmm. So we're actually at the what brought me back out part right now, okay. which when I started interviewing these high achievers, I started realizing what I was doing wrong by seeing what they were doing right. And so that's why I said, I'll go to the top three. And, and just to give people a, a two second backstory, because people might be thinking, well, you know, he's interviewed these high achievers or super achievers or leaders, you know, who are some of these people? So I know if they really are in my mind, high achievers. And I say this because George, a lot of the names people instantly recognize. So Jack Canfield, the chicken soup for the soul guy, mm -hmm. uh, would be one Mark Victor Hansen, uh, there's uh, Rick Hansen up in Canada with the Man in Motion tour that he had, uh, pop star Keisha Shante, Olympic gold medalist, um, Rob Brown, who's an NHL hockey player, Larry Wingett, Lisa Nichols, who I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. I just have this book in front of me, but Michael Pork, if you, I don't know if you know that name or not. Mm -hmm. um, right, yep. Has heroic public speaking, um, and on and on and on. And so these are really people, this is why it's significant, these are really people that have literally got to the top 1% of their field in almost every right. case. So that's yeah. kind of the backstory. As far as what they have in common, I'll go reverse order because to me that makes better sense than to try to start with the best and then people are like, well, I already heard the best, why well, continue? Uh, so the, the third most common trait is what I call the power of no. And what that looks like in the real world is they know, they've figured out what to say no to and what to say yes to. And they're very clear on it. And they say no way more often than the people that struggle with becoming a high achiever. Not only that, they're more fulfilled and their life is less chaotic. Mm -hmm. And so what that looks like is sometimes they can't say no very well because they're a yes, like they're a person that loves people, wants to help people. And so they might have five people that are keeping people out. As an example with uh, Jack Canfield, and not to say that he wouldn't say no, you know, just as easy, but when you're reaching out to somebody like Jack Canfield, it took four months to get that interview. He has a whole layer of people, even if they're not saying our, our goal is to say no, their, their goal is to separate what can Jack spend his time on, given he has a limited amount of time and he's only one person. So whether the person figures it out themselves and they have their own system for saying no, or whether they have a whole team that does that, they figured out how to say no to all the things that won't move the needle mm -hmm. so they can focus on just the few amount of yeses that will and can move the needle. So the power of no is almost without exception something that these high achievers have to practice they don't even have a choice because they're so busy they can't say yes to everything because everything as we know you say yes to means you're saying no to something else mm -hmm. but why this was significant for me and how i said it's something i was doing wrong is i was raised in this little basically you want to call it maybe a farming community or fishing community and i was always taught to say yes to everything and then you'll figure out how to do it but just say yes to everybody never say no and so it was a real big life changed for me to figure out that the people I was trying to strive to become were saying no while I was saying yes. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the third most common trait. Mm. So I can dive if you want yep. now into the second one. Yeah. What's uh, the second one? Okay. Second one. Uh, you talked, you alluded to it earlier. There's a great quote that's similar to what you were mentioning. And I think it's by Les Brown, but as you know, with quotes, who knows, it could be 
be from somebody else. But the quote was along the lines of, the only difference between the you of today and the you of five years' time will be the books that you read and the people that you meet. Right, so this right. is where mm-hmm. that, I think you said a coach told you that or somebody yep. mentioned that to you. Yep. Uh, so what we've discovered is lifelong learners are leaders. That's how I'll position this. Mm-hmm. So what we've discovered is the people that continue to invest in their mind, I call it feeding their mind, uh, the right things are the ones that rise to and stay at the top. And that's why it's no surprise if you study the leaders of 100 years ago, they all had personal libraries, even if they didn't finish grade three. Yeah. You know, we went to uh, Concord, Massachusetts, and Ralph Waldo Emerson, who a lot of people listening will probably know that name, wrote, wrote a lot of great quotes, was a great author in the 1800s. Same with uh, Henry David Thoreau, Louise uh, May Alcott, uh, who wrote the Little Women books. They were all in the same area. And we went there to visit that area a couple times. And we went to um, Ralph Waldo Emerson's home. And his, pub- or his personal library was, I think, bigger than the public library at the time. Hmm. And so that's no coincidence. These people realize the importance of feeding their mind. And I always add in the preface, feeding their mind the right stuff. That's why I don't say readers are leaders anymore. Because you can be reading the wrong stuff and it's not going to make you a leader. You could say leaders are readers, but you can't say readers are leaders, truthfully. Right. Uh, but the key thing is now, the reason I changed it to learners is because you don't have to read anymore. You can listen to a podcast, a show like this. You can get your information and content from a TED Talk. Mm-hmm. But the key thing to know is they're finding a way, these leaders, to continue to self-educate long after their schooling is done. And they're getting the right information. And in a world today where we're information-heavy, wisdom-light, they yes. know how to get to the wisdom quicker than everybody else. So yes. that's number two. Perfect. And I do have that written down. That was in one of your talks. Could you say that again? We are information heavy and wisdom light. Is that, did I say that correctly? You did hundred percent. Right. Because right? I think that's a lot of what you said uh, in some of your talks. And, and when you're done with this last point of, of what you've learned from these people, I want to circle back on some of the things I've learned this week and to get your perspective on it. Cause we have about 10 minutes and I, but what, what was number one? So number one, the big drum roll, I guess, yeah. is uh, it's an interesting one. It's interesting because some people would argue this one with me, but I can only tell you what I've discovered. And so the number one is that these people, I'm going to position it different than I used to. They're living their passion mm. and they're living on purpose. And the reason I position it that way, George, is because our show used to be called Conversations with Passion, our, our radio show. And what I found in the last couple of years is I use that word passion, even with some of the highest of achievers, and I've been getting pushback. They really don't like this idea of passion. And the reason is, is because perhaps it's become overused and their thinking is their clients will come to them and say, well, I guess I'm not going to be successful because I can't find my passion, but everybody says you have to. So their thinking is people that are using this term passion in that way are actually making people feel less of or, or like they're not successful or they're a failure. I don't look at it that way, but that's kind of what I've been hearing from about 50% of people, and it's a change in the last few years. So that's why I add in the living on purpose, because almost all those same people can get behind the idea of living your purpose. Their problem is the passion, and I think why that they have a challenge is what I define it as. Uh, in my last book, I said these words, passion is what you do, purpose is why you do it. That's how I define the difference. And so people don't have a problem with the purpose because everybody feels your purpose is probably going to be fairly similar throughout the years, but your passion can be a moving target. Or they also feel that you don't have to necessarily be in love with what you're doing and it can still bring you purpose. So take whichever way you want out of that. But basically what I've discovered is that the number one trait is these people have discovered their passion and they're using it to live their purpose. That, uh, yeah. So yeah, I think that's, so passion is what you do and the purpose is why you do it. And I've heard this from a number of other people 
and uh, and I heard it from you uh, in the past 24 hours in some of your videos, but it's about figuring out your why. Your why is bigger than your fear. Getting out of your comfort zone was from one of your talks, and I really like that. Like, uh, we had a gentleman on a couple months ago that went and adopted a little girl in Haiti. And at some point during that adoption process had guns to his head and had machetes to his neck and was told to leave and it wasn't going to work out, but he kept going. And I kept asking him, I'm like, man, I would have, I would have walked away from that. I would have quit. I would have wanted no part of that. Uh, but his why was so big on why he had to get that little girl and why it was important to him. And that keeps you going. That's what gets you out of your comfort zone. So that is, I take a ton of notes. People that do listen to the podcast know I take notes. I'm holding them up on YouTube. This is my weekly notes. And a, a large chunk of these notes that I take, have taken this week are from you. But th this is from, this is, this idea is from you, but it, I heard it earlier in the week. And I wanted your, I wanted your opinion on this, this take on this and how you feel about it. This idea of eliminating, eliminating people from your life that, and th this is a quote from Dean Graziano, and you said it very similarly, eliminate people from your life that rob you of your confidence. But you have a list, I think it was your list of the, uh, your weed list, things that you need to pull out, uh, that you need to weed out of your life. And I think it was your number five. It's, it's, um, no, it's, it wasn't your number five. It was your number four to pull out the other weeds, right? It's the same idea. So uh, talk about that because I think that's my life changed substantially when I started removing, not in a bad way, but it's just like, you know, you can only, I don't want negativity and, and resentment and uh, criticism. I don't need that in my life 24 seven, right? And so if I, that, I you know, but talk about that. Like I pulled those weeds. And, that, and it changed my life. Absolutely. So in a TEDx talk, as you know, you're limited for time. I think that TEDx talk you're referring to was like 12 minutes. So you can't go into the, an exercise for doing it. Right. But what I teach is an exercise for how you can actually do that. And that's what sort of was the catalyst for sharing it in that talk. So I think I called it the, the uh, take, removing the other weeds weed. <laughs> yeah, I, that's exactly how you say it. And yep. so what I tell people to do, and so, so I, have to, I have to tell you why I say this is because as you just said, in my life, I had to make that change. So you said that you made a change for yourself as well. So what happened with me, George, is that I, this is not to go too far into this, but basically I battled anxiety uh, when I was like roughly 19, 20, 21. Then it, it kind of morphed into hypochondria. So for those listening, it basically means if you read about a disease, you start developing the symptoms until the doctor says you don't have it and then you develop a new disease. And basically, so you go through the motions. Of different diseases and I had that for about four years and I've always said that you can't have that fully in your body and also be an optimist at the same time you can't think I'm gonna to die tomorrow and also be an optimist at the same time so what I had so basically I came out of that and how I came out of that is I discovered my purpose and passion which is probably why I'm so big on uh, telling people about the importance of that and so what happened was uh, I started slipping again you know maybe three four years later and I couldn't figure out what was going on until somebody in my life was with me and it just clued in how negative they were being and how toxic they were and i always thought i was surrounding myself only with positive people so here's where the exercise comes in what i did was i in my own head i didn't hear anybody say it i just said i gotta figure out what's the one way i can figure out what's coming into my life in terms of toxic toxic energy at least from people and i figured the only way i can do it is to do an inventory so i basically put down a piece of paper put a line down the middle and i basically said positive on one side negative on the other 
and who's adding positive, and I wrote them on the positive side, who's adding negative, wrote them on the negative side, and what I really wanted to know was how big the numbers were on each side. And I would have guessed out of the 18 people I put on that list, probably 16 would have been positive, and it turned out it was like 12 were negative. So more than half of my list was negative. And so then I knew who was having the negative or positive influence, and then I had to do what you just said, which is I had to adjust accordingly. You know, so for people, I'll say, take that as you will, in the sense that for some people that might be, I have to remove this person. For others, you might just say, okay, I'm with them three days a week. I got to be with them one day a week. I leave it up to people to decide because only you know if you can remove this person from your life. Could be a family member you're really close with. But the bottom line is you want to have that list, not just half positive, half negative. You want to have it balanced very well so that's like 80, 90% positive. Because the truth is, throughout the day, you're putting in positive deposits. And everything that comes in negative is basically taking withdrawals. And you have to have more to positive to positive to negative. So what you're referring to there, that's what I tell people to do. Do the exercise. Say, okay, I surround myself with, and put a list down. You can just do the list first and say, I surround myself with 12 people most often. Or even type of clients I surround myself with. Think about the past week and figure that out. And then go, okay, now I'll add a positive and negative besides each one. And then you can separate the list or you could just add them up. And if, you're, if you know that the list is heavy with negative, you need to make changes. That's the whole summary of that system. But that's basically what I figured out is I needed to get rid of some of that negativity. And then you can flip this and say, once you figure it with people, you can then do it with things that impact your life, like what you eat, uh, what you're reading, what you're feeding your mind, what you're watching, all that kind of other stuff too. Yeah. So the other thing, and I, there, I know we have to wrap up and there's one more question I want to ask you after, uh, essentially after this. Um, one thing I wrote down this week was to be obsessed about your not to do list. And when I listened to your Ted talk about pulling the weeds, that that's immediately what I thought of. He, I, I said, Corey's essentially given us things are, are not to do list, right? Not, not to have these people around or not to have, not to be so locked in on technology, not to be, uh, not to lose our wisdom in certain things. And, you know, to, uh, you know, to really kind of do those things and to, to, the thing that I can't weed. Right. Uh, and I just really like that because I, I, I'm very much in sync with those things, but that just, um, that really just, that, that that's kind of what I took from your talk was hey, Corey's given us a what not to do. So to people listening, you know, every single day I open this old notebook and I have my to-do list, but maybe what's more important to me and what may bring me more value is to make sure that I'm solid and I am uh, not complacent with, and I'm diligent with my not to-do list, the things that I stand for and the things that I won't uh, waver on, which is negativity or, you know, being locked in on a conversation and not being distracted by technology or I saying I can't and letting negative self-beliefs come in. So, I mean, that's really what I took from that, that TED talk of yours. Um, I want to end with this. Um, and I know you have to go. Uh, I guess one thing is find, find another hole in your schedule. Cause there's too much, there's, a, there's more, we, there's more we need, to, uh, there's more that I can learn from you that, that we can all learn from you. Um, I have a friend of mine that's on every week. I mentioned him earlier. His name's uh, Jason Wells. He's a dear friend of mine. He, and he told me the story about, Hey, when I meet somebody new, I never ask what they do for a living anymore. He goes, when I get on a plane and sit next to somebody, the question I always ask them is, um, what are you passionate about? And I started doing that and the, uh, not to go on a big story, but this past week I was uh, at a, a city in uh, Missouri where there was a winery and I was sitting down and there was a cop there and the cop and I were just talking and I said, what are you passionate about? And his eyes lit up and he, he looked at me like he had never been asked that question. And he looked at me and he said, I'm passionate about restoring old cars. 
And I was like, man, that's badass, man. And we sat for 30 minutes and talked about that. And I, it was an amazing conversation for me watching this guy just really light up talking about that. So to you, Corey, and I, and I know you have to go. What are you passionate about? So I have to say one other thing, George, just before yep. I answer that question, but yep. something that's interesting that you triggered here. So I got to say it because it'll yep. crystallize it for me and also internalize it. But uh, when you mentioned that about the not to do list, yep. I actually, and I got to get back to doing it almost like a journal. I used to journal on what not to do, you know, to write, to, to get it in your head, almost like an affirmation. As you just said, don't surround yourself with these people. Don't do this. Don't do that. But you triggered a new idea, which is that I I've always done like an ABC list. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the C's are things that, I'm not going to end up doing, but I put them on there because it, it reinforces what an A is and even what a B is. But my point is it made me start thinking maybe what I should now do instead of uh, put them as C's is I should now just cross them off. As soon as I put them on and I realized they're C, like maybe there's a power, some sort of energy in just crossing it off. Mm -hmm. And it, maybe it forces don't take this. It'll, maybe it helps you start saying no easier. Anyway, that's just a, yeah, a food for thought. Like so it, it crystallizes like because now I'm thinking maybe I should add this into my talks. I get, I never do anything unless I do it first myself. So I'll probably do it for like three months and see if there's any power in that. If I feel empowered by, no, I'm not doing that. But anyway, mm -hmm. that just right. triggered my mind. Uh, what am I passionate about? So I have multiple passions, clearly from this conversation, we've already sort of probably figured that out. But what really, to me, if I look at what the core essence that's underlying all of the stuff that I'm doing, it's really impacting lives. So this is, I mean, tying into the purpose and the why as well. Mm -hmm. But the what I'm doing, hopefully, is impacting lives. And I'm doing that through, let's say, music, comedy, uh, speaking on a stage. So it's all really communicating something to people that hopefully can transform their way of thought. So what do I mean by that? You're performing stand-up comedy. Maybe they're having a horrible day. They get a laugh out of you. It helps them escape a little. You're playing music. We can all unify through music. Maybe it makes them feel it sort of as a, almost like a group. Mm -hmm. That's part of this whole thing uh, in this nightclub at one night. Or if I'm speaking to an audience, maybe together they're rooting for me. I'm rooting for them. We all want to succeed together. Or maybe I'm trying to impart something in their mind. So the what I'm doing to me is more tied to maybe the why I'm doing it than maybe other people. But the what for me is maybe a means to an end. So mm -hmm. I, of course I enjoy being on the stage. I mean, that's all tied to everything I do, but why I'm doing it is either to help somebody escape, to transform their mind, to make them think a different way than before. So that's what gets me jazzed up. Being able to have that opportunity to share ideas with somebody that could potentially transform their way of thinking and their way of doing. That's sort of what my, that's what gets me jazzed up. And so that's my passion. But again, it's really tied to my why or my purpose too. Perfect. Perfect. Listen, I know you have to run, but real quick, how can people track you down? I know you and I connected on LinkedIn. Um, is that the best way to track you down for people to reach out to you? I would say the better way probably for me is, uh, I call it the hub, but my hub is thatspeakerguy.com. Thatspeakerguy.com. And then if they go there, you'll be able to watch those TEDx talks we were talking about. It has all my social media at the top, so they can go to LinkedIn and connect there or Facebook or wherever, wherever they like best meeting. Uh, but also, uh, we talked about my program and stuff like that. If they're, and not even saying if you want to jump into the program, but if you want to learn more about it or if you say, I know somebody that'd love to get into speaking, the link there, it, I think one of the links basically says, um, learn more about the speaking program. So my books are on there. So everything is on there. So rather than kind of trying to get to know me through eight or different, nine different places, go there and then you can direct yourself from there. Okay, thatspeakerguy.com. 
That's me. Perfect. So look for that. Also, I will put that in the show notes at the bottom of the podcast that you'll be able to get on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, wherever. And also this video will be up on YouTube. I will put it in the show notes there. So you'll be able to track down Corey. Listen, Corey, we connected on LinkedIn. Um, you sent a message to me. Um, I reached out to you and said, you know, the, the thing I'm learning with this is just to learn to ask. People can say no, you know, and probably as you got your 5,000 great talks that you had with people of influence and uh, elite performers, um, you probably got told no a number of times, right? But you, uh, you have to learn to ask. So I'm glad I asked. I really am because you've impacted my Friday, which will lead me into a great weekend and a powerful Monday. So listen, really appreciate your time. I really do. And find a hole in your schedule so we can do this again. I will do, and I'll leave listeners with this one thing, listeners and viewers. Uh, one of my favorite quotes ever is by Steve Martin. So I'll leave people to think about this and how they can incorporate this in their life. But Steve Martin had this brilliant quote that says, be so good, they can't ignore you. So what I would leave people with is thinking is, how can you put in 10,000 hours into something so that you can be so good that people can't ignore you? Figure that Perfect. out. 10,000 hours. We could talk about that in another podcast because I do believe in that. I believe in success of life and skill is a math equation. And you got to get down that road of time and uh, correct skill development and um, a tenacity. I think that's what it's all about. So, hey, listen, Corey, thank you. Have a great weekend. And again, I really appreciate your time. You too, George. It's been a pleasure. And let's make that, uh, as you said, that's fine, that hole in the schedule and make it work again. Perfect. Thank you.